James 5, starting in verse 1, he writes this. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lied on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Some light words from James. I'm going to take this and put this here. You know the average attention span of a um, child is about two and a half minutes. I'm used to speaking to children. You're not children. I'm putting this here so I don't preach a 10-minute message because <laughs> that's what I'm used to. Um, I feel like uh, the Lord has got his word for us today. James opens up with, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Well, James doesn't really pull any punches here now, does he? This is James with an Old Testament prophet hat on. This is James speaking in bold strokes, and he's not really worrying about nuance. He is really channeling Old Testament prophetic thunder here. Even his start, come now, is sarcastic. It's almost sardonic. Just listen up. He calls them, you rich. Saying weep and howl, that is Old Testament language. And so we have the question here, who is James assailing with this kind of energy? This is really one of those passages that you kind of have to know the cast, okay, in order for it to make much sense to you. And so who are we talking about here? The rich. So James is actually talking about one set of people, the rich, to another set of people, the poor. One of those parties is absent. The rich are actually absent. In verse 7, following our verses here, he turns around and says, Be patient, therefore, brothers. And so what we're talking about in verses 1 through 6 are not brothers. Now, we kind of know this because he does not offer hope. He does not offer escape. He does not call them to repentance. It is simple, pure denunciation. The prophets often address parties that were actually not present. They would often give oracles to the nations, like for instance, Babylon or Syria, and they didn't really care whether Babylon or Syria heard them. They were offering them no hope because they really were using this to call and comfort God's people. Here the rich are almost a caricature. I mean, they are almost a mustache-twirling villain. He uses this term to kind of set aside a cast of people, an ungodly cast of people. In a similar way that the Gospels use the term the Jews 
to denote the religious leaders who opposed Jesus. Now, obviously, Jesus and his disciples and his followers were Jews. And so this term, the Jews, meant the people who had arrayed themselves against Jesus, the people in power. In a similar way, the rich are not all rich. It's not talking about the fact that there are no godly rich. It is saying that these are the people that have arrayed themselves against the poorer people that James was addressing. Does it mean that there are no godly rich ever? Well, obviously not. The scripture is full of examples of godly rich. In fact, riches are a sign of God's blessing. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were all said to be extremely rich. Job, God doubled his riches. Solomon, God gave him honor and riches. In the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea, who gave Jesus his tomb, he was said to be a wealthy man, and he was also called a disciple of Jesus. All of the people who allowed the church to gather in their house were people of means. And so we're not just talking about the fact that there are no godly rich, but we're talking about a cast of people that James is painting in broad strokes. These are the people who set themselves, excuse me, set themselves against God's people, who many of them who are poor. He is also writing to the poor. So if the rich are kind of that vaudeville villain, then the poor are the damsel in distress here. James' goal is to encourage them. He, by his denunciation of the people that were oppressing him, he is wanting to encourage them and say, God sees your plight. He hears and he knows. And yet there's one other audience that's a little bit further removed, right here. That's us. Now, maybe there are very, very few parallels in society that we can imagine in which rich landowners who have all the power are oppressing poor migrant workers who are subsistence living, although perhaps that happens in a place of agrarian culture, maybe in the Napa Valley, I don't know, but we have laws against those kinds of things, don't we? It's not something we encounter every day. So how do you and I hear and profit when the setting is, is so different from our very own? Two ways. First, this is the word of God. By it, he establishes and accomplishes his will. From it, we learn what pleases him. We learn what displeases him, and we can respond accordingly. The fact that it's primarily negative and aimed at a group that we have very few parallels with in our experience does not stop us from seeing what God loves and what God hates. Or as one man said, he shows us the pits that we may not fall into them. One thing I'd like to acknowledge here, like Delaware has about 200% the national average in housing, and so the dollar just doesn't stretch quite as far as we wish, right? Uh, Not anyone here would probably say, I've got all the money that I could ever use, I feel that I am rich. But there is one thing we have to acknowledge today, is that our society, in comparison to almost any time in history, is affluent. Many of us um, enjoy luxuries that were beyond their wildest imaginations. Things like heating and cooling, running water, electricity, air conditioning, freezers and ice, fast food, grocery aisles with unlimited selection almost, entertainment in our homes and in our pockets. These were things that only the wealthiest could only dream about. So in comparison to history, we have some of the similarities of an affluent culture. We're also rich in time. 
Technology is not just the, the smartphone in our pockets. Technology is anything that, that a culture uses to save time. And there are many technologies that allow us, to freeze us to pursue leisure and self-indulgence. It's the difference between us trudging a mile down to a well and turning the tap of water. It's the difference of pouring candles and flipping a light switch. Every one of these pieces of technology frees us up to have more time to pursue leisure. Would you say that our nation has the time and the resources to pursue self-indulgence? It doesn't take much looking around to realize that that is the case, and that is the mark of an affluent society. It would really be hard to find any economic status in our society that does not share the benefits of this time-freeing technology. As believers who enjoy affluence in relation to history, and we even have the opportunity to pursue it in this culture that we live in right now, we have to be really alert of a few dangers that accompany it. It's almost, in fact, inevitable that it accompanies it. So if you have affluence, then you have these dangers. So I'd like to talk to us about three risks that we have to be alert to. The first one is the danger of hoarding. And we see this in verses two and three. In each one of these dangers that we look at, we're gonna look at an indictment that James gives. So he charges them with something. And then we're going to look at a reversal in which something happens that the rich, and remember this is the ungodly cast that he's addressing, the rich did not expect. And then we're gonna look at our response to it. So James' indictment is this. You have hoarded up treasure in the last days. The most important phrase in this is the last days. He says, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten. Those are evidences of hoarding right there. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Hoarding is never good, but it is never so condemning in this case as in this time. The problem is mainly with the timing of it. It is done in the last days. Now the thing that we need to know about the last days is that we are in them. In Acts 2 chapter 17, excuse me, chapter 2 verse 17, Peter, who is trying to explain to the people who are trying to make sense of something, so all these people had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. They came from many, many languages, and they were gathered there. And the Holy Spirit came upon the believers, and they were speaking in these people's languages, the varied languages. And people were trying to figure out what is going on here. And Peter explains this. But this, in other words, what is happening right here, right now, is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So we are in the last days, and that means something. Well, you, you may be thinking, well, it seems like the last days, or I think of the word apocalypse, seems like the apocalypse is a great time to stockpile something. Well, it might seem that way, but here's the thing. The last days are the time where God is establishing his kingdom. It is like the mustard seed that is turning into a great bush. It is like the leaven that is permeating the lump. He is establishing his kingdom. And so, during this time, we have to listen to the word of the king for our priorities. Jesus spoke to our priorities in Luke chapter 12. He told them to pack light and live light because 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You've heard of the treasure principle. Our heart always follows our money. He warned, Jesus did, that to do otherwise than to invest in the kingdom is to risk having your possessions fail you. So if you tuck them away, moths are going to get them and thieves are going to get them. And James picks up on that language. He focuses on the futility of stockpiling while living in the last days. You see, the wealth was not meant to be stockpiled. It was meant to be used in the service of the king. And so the rich here think that by putting them away and saving up, that they can somehow cushion themselves for the end, that it will buy them security. But James leads off in verse 1, and he says, it is not security they will have. Weep and howl for the misery, not security, but misery. The riches have rotted, and the garments are moth-eaten. Every indictment that James gives has a reversal. So it's kind of a great irony, rather than storing up security as they hoped, what they were actually storing up was judgment. That which they trusted corroded for lack of use, and that corrosion served as evidence that they didn't have kingdom values. It was evidence. It was almost as if the corrosion and the tarnish that was on their riches rubbed off of them, and it showed judgment by hoarding for their future rather than using their possessions for God's purpose. It brings judgment. And so, for those of us who are hearing this, and we're trying to be alert to the dangers of hoarding, how do we avoid that? Well, we do not hoard. Instead, we use. We use it before the Lord. So it's only by using it for his purposes that we can do what Jesus said, lay up treasure in heaven. Now, much of this using for his purposes are going to be mundane, right? The cost of living is high. We have to clothe ourselves. We have to uh, raise up little kingdom citizens, and they're expensive, right? Uh, Much of this is going to be mundane. We have to eat to fuel our bodies. We have to have the tools we need for work. We have to live in a place. Preparing ourselves for service and raising kingdom citizens, that is mundane. And during this time, each of us have to ask themselves, so what is prudence and what is hoarding? What is prudent savings and what is hoarding? Some of the early believers were selling all their possessions and they were basically going and sitting on the mountaintop waiting for Jesus to come and they were rebuked where the the writer said, if they don't work, don't let them eat. And so we must realize that Jesus is probably not coming back tomorrow. And so we have to be prudent. We have to store. Now really, what we're going for here is using it and we're using it before the Lord. How much we should save prudently, how much we should spend on ourselves, like that is something that we have to answer before the Lord. It's not something that uh, Dave Ramsey can answer for us, is it? He may have some great advice, but we have to do that before the Lord. And so in summary, be prudent. Use what he gives us wisely, and don't trust in hoarding. The second danger is the danger of fraud. If the first is the danger of hoarding, the next is the danger of fraud. Let's look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So here's the indictment. James indicts the rich, this ungodly social caste, for cheating these seasonal workers that mowed their fields. They held back their wages by fraud. 
Now, a little bit of background. The Mosaic Law actually specified that you do not withhold the wages. So first of all, these people are not being righteous. They're not being just. They're doing something that God forbids. These are seasonal workers, and they live on a subsistence wage. In other words, they need the money at the end of the day probably to go eat. These landovers would know this very, very well because it was established by God's law. It's something they probably needed to store up for even the year before. God's law said they had to pay, but some of them said, checked their pockets, pulled them out and said, nope, can't pay you today, and they held on to it. And what goes on here, it says that those wages cry out. In other words, it's personified. Some of you may be remembering the, uh, the Jack and the Beanstalk where Jack snags the giant's treasure and as he's going out, the, it's, it's sometimes a goose, sometimes a harp. It squawks or it calls out. It's, it's not where it's supposed to be. Well, here it is. These personified riches are crying out from the purse of the, of the rich landowners because it should be in the pocket of these laborers. The scripture also says that those harvesters too cried out. In verse 6, I'm going to kind of combine this with this. We see the rich using uh, another means for their end to fraud. It says they use the courts to condemn and murder the righteous. This is probably not just having them killed. It may be something that one commentator called judicial murder. In other words, they, they took them because of their debts and they threw them in debtor's prison where they would basically rot and their families had no recourse these poor righteous people did not resist because they could not resist. These are all ways that the rich of those time committed fraud against the righteous poor. So what is the reversal here? The reversal is that it says those cries, the cries of the purse and the cries of the harvesters came into the ears of the Lord of the hosts. The phrase the Lord of hosts communicates God's role as a warrior. Anytime you see it, it means that he is the head of the angel armies, and he is moving on behalf of his people. Now, when God moves on behalf of his people, you want to be sure that he's moving for you, not against you. And so this is a big uh-oh. And so the reversal in verse 6 is not so clear. In fact, it just says that he does not resist. It's almost as if the silence of the righteous person speaks loud. He simply does not resist. But you could go dot, dot, dot. That Lord of the hosts, he will resist. Now, how do we respond to this as people who do not want to fraud, who are on the alert for it? If we know that anyone who's trying to make their way in a complex world, as this world is complex, is going to be tempted to hold back that which they owe, which is why we have to stay alert for this temptation of fraud. So what do we do instead? Not fraud, but integrity. In fact, we need to have aggressive integrity. Instead, we should pay our debts with integrity. If we are employers, we should pay our workers fairly in compensation for what they give us. We should do so promptly. If we are borrowers, as we are, many of us have credits, Many of us have student loans. Many of us has car loans, a mortgage, library fines, all of those things we need to pay with integrity as we can. As citizens, we owe to Caesar, and so we render what is due to him. And to each other, as much as in our power, we try not to be in debt, but to owe each other only love. And so we need to be alert to this temptation of fraud, and we fight it with our integrity. Finally, 
we have to be alert to the danger of self-indulgence. So we have fraud, we've got hoarding, and we have self-indulgence. Verse 5 says this, You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. What does James indict the rich for here? He really indicts them for clueless living. Something has got their attention and it isn't God. They are obsessed with living on the earth in comfort and luxury and in self-indulgence. Luxury doesn't necessarily mean sin. It just means a soft, comfortable extravagance. In the Gospels, there's a rich man in the parable of Lazarus, and what he engages in says that he feasted sumptuously every um, every day. So in other words, this was like over-the-top, comfortable living. Anything that he thought good, he did not withhold from himself. Now, it is no shame to have nice things, especially if they are tools for us serving God. But the never-ending pursuit of a softer, more comfortable life is what is in, in sight here. Uh, some of you may have hobbies, and if you have hobbies, you may be on a forum. And if you're on a forum, sometimes you'll see a phrase called upgrade-itis. You heard of upgrade-itis? There's also saw something called the law of, of diminishing returns, right? And so with upgrade-itis, it's kind of like you get to a certain point to where really the quality of whatever you're pursuing is not getting better, but still you press on. You know, it's not a $2,000 machine now, it's a $10,000 machine, and, and on and on it goes. It's not hard to see evidence of this. And so, upgrade-itis, that's something that we would definitely be keeping an eye on. We need to put a rein on our luxury spending. Now, self-indulgence, unlike luxury, luxury may not be sin. Self-indulgence basically means I go after it, and if sin happens to be in the mix, I'm still going to go for it. They don't let anything God says get in their way if they want it. The reversal here is that with each thing that the unrighteous rich see as good, there's, there's this ironic reality. And so a life marked by self-indulgence is actually a life not preparing for better quality of life. It's a life preparing for judgment. James gives us a vivid picture. He calls it fattening their hearts in the day of slaughter. Now the heart is the seat of the emotions. And so it is, it is our desires. It's what drives us. And, and so The rich here are fattening their hearts. So basically, they are feeding those desires. They're constantly with the catalog open, constantly browsing, constantly looking for that next thing that I can upgrade. That is what it means to fatten our hearts. And so James gives us a picture here that is both vivid and sad. When we feed our desires in a constant stream of wanting more, it's as if we are a fat livestock making ourselves fat and sleek not knowing that a butcher is wetting his knife and the meat market is coming. Which one is chosen? The fat one, not the skinny one. And so the truth is here, the more indulgence, the more ready for judgment. And so how do we respond to this as believers who want to do the will of God? Instead of self-indulgence, what do we replace that with? Now, you may think the opposite of indulgence is withholding. And so we'd say like the opposite of indulging is denying. And that may be the case in some times. But I think there's a better answer to this. I think that we fight this with thanksgiving and enjoyment. Since we are enabled by our culture to be rich in time, we have the possibility of seeking luxury. 
and self-indulgence. And so we don't fight it with asceticism, though. We don't say, like, no, I'm not going to touch, taste, or, or smell. I'm not going to do this. That's asceticism. Instead, we're going to enjoy things wide awake. We enjoy them awake with thanksgiving. We don't do this in order to sedate ourselves. Sometimes the pleasures of life, we, we do it because life is just, just hard now, right? So we binge watch. We, we sedate ourselves from the hardness. No, that's not how we give glory to God. We would do very well to think about how to enjoy things in light of its impermanence. You know, sometimes things are better because they end. If you had an unlimited supply of ice cream, where would be the fun of that? You'd be like, well, that sounds pretty good to me, actually. No, but at some point, it ends. And it's the very impermanence that makes it wonderful. A good place for us to start as we're thinking about how to enjoy things is to start with the creator. One of the values of the Kids Connection, we call this Kids Connection because we're trying to connect things for, for the children that the world tends to separate. And one of those things is God to all of life. And we explain to the kids that everything comes from the hand of the Creator, that it needs to be accepted as such. And so that snack that you are enjoying the sunshine on your face, those beautiful colors, all of these things are from the hand of God and are to be enjoyed with thanksgiving wide awake. You know, God did not have to make the malleard reaction that makes a steak taste awesome. He did not have to make the fibers of Egyptian cotton so soft. He did not have to paint the world in beautiful hues of colors. He could have made it monochromatic, but he didn't. He didn't have to make us in his image, men and women who loved to create so that we could make beautiful things and create the technology that frees up our time. No, we do not honor our creator by denying and saying that those gifts are not good. We honor him by saying, yes, indeed, they are good. When we start to enjoy them fully because they are good but not permanent, then we're on the right track. We enjoy them wide awake with thanksgiving. And so, as believers who are trying to live in light of these last days, I pointed out three different ways that we need to be alert. To hoarding, instead of hoarding, we use it. Instead of, um, instead of excuse me, fraud, we, we, we use things with integrity. And instead of indulging, we enjoy them wide awake with thanksgiving. I'd like to... Um, close with two just words to maybe two groups of people that I may be speaking to. Now, there may be someone here that feels like you're targeted by James Cannon. Like maybe your values have reflected the rich more than it reflects the righteous poor. And you wonder if he would lump you in that social caste of the ungodly rich. So I had mentioned that there is no hope portrayed here. There is no call to repentance. It is simply a denunciation. But really, the hope is between the lines. In Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol, you may be familiar with that famous character, Ebenezer Scrooge. And as he's approaching the, uh, the ghost of the Christmas yet to come, the ghost has showed him people fighting over his bedclothes. He has showed them rejoicing over his death. He showed him his gravestone with his name written on it. And Ebenezer Scrooge approaches the silent ghost and he says, Why show me this spirit if I am past all hope? James here is an unrelenting ghost of Christmas yet to come. 
pointing to the fate of the faithless rich. Yet, as so often in Scripture, it is often through his warning that God gives us hope. God establishes his will, and it will stand, and it provokes us to respond to it. And in responding, we find mercy. Why show you this if you are past all hope? Hope, in this case, is seeing and embracing the futility of living life in that way and saying, God, I am impoverished unless you give me your riches. Without seeing the futility, there's no hope of attaining those riches that God reserves in Christ Jesus for those who love him. The hope is come to him. He will in no ways cast you out. That's the first word. The second is for believers who wish to hear this word and to live a life that's pleasing to God, especially in regard to our possessions. How do we live wisely in a culture that is fraught with danger because it is fraught with affluence? Here's my word. Do not mistake, make the mistake of thinking that the appetizer is the feast. Don't make the mistake of thinking the appetizer is the feast. In Isaiah 25, 6, eternal life is compared to a feast. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. You see, God looks at eternity as a place where it is much more full, much more delicious, much more vivid than anything we can possibly imagine here. It goes against the the cartoon picture of heaven where people are sitting on clouds plucking harps. No, we will have things to do with our hands. We will enjoy ourselves with God before the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, this feast is being prepared for us, and we need to be aware, though, that this life is not it. I want you to imagine with me that a guest comes to a wedding with some really, really great expectations. He has come hungry. Now, you guys do know that there's a difference between um, southern weddings and northern weddings, right? In the south, they can get away with um, some light hors d'oeuvres. I mean, like some butter mints and mixed nuts and punch and coffee. I mean, that, that's, that's it. And, uh, but, but, I mean, here in the north, a lot of times it's, it's a lot different, right? You have like a full course meal. So this guy comes in, and uh, during that time, a lot of times where the bridal party, uh, it's after the wedding ceremony, the bridal party goes off to take their pictures, and they, they ask them to matriculate to an area where they normally serve them some, some appetizers of some court, sort. And so he goes to the appetizer area, and he becomes angry. He's really angry. He's incensed. Do they call this a meal? He wonders. Determined to make the best of a bad situation, he decides that he's going to try to recoup the price of his gift, at least. And so he proceeds to seek out the richest stuff. He, he waves aside the cheese and the crackers. I mean, man, he goes after the puff pastry and the shrimp cocktail. And, and he just gets everything he can. He approaches a server and says, hey, I've got a big party over here who needs that tray. And before they can even do anything, he whisks the tray away from him and he goes and he, he devours it. Uh, he goes to the, the open bar and he steals a bottle and begins to partake liberally of it. Uh, the hostess approaches him and, uh, and is trying to rein him in and he begins to just verbally abuse her and like drives her away. When he's full, he begins to stuff his pockets full of all the rich food that he can possibly carry. And so eventually the groom himself confronts him and he comes and he says, don't you know that this is just the appetizer? 
before the feast, and then he forbids him to enter the feast and tells him to leave immediately. It's a reversal. All of his aims, all of his aims are reversed. This man made this mistake of thinking that the appetizer is the feast. Folks, our feast day is coming, but this isn't it. And so to avoid the dangers of affluence, never forget this. Enjoy that was not meant to be hoarded. Use it. Don't hoard it for the purpose for which our Lord intended it. Shun the temptation to gain by means of fraud. Enjoy the gifts that God gives, but don't fatten your heart. Don't deaden your vision of the life to come by seeking luxury and self-indulgence. My prayer for us, for each of us today, is that we may be alert in the hope for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the clarity that James speaks to us. Father, there's something refreshing just hearing the word given so straight, so vividly. Lord, it makes us look and see what you love and what you hate. Father, I pray now that you would help us, that you would give us wisdom to live wisely in this current age. Lord, I pray that you would take our resources and that you would use them for your glory. I pray that your kingdom would be magnified through this group here. Father, I pray that we would have eyes for that feast or that we would enjoy your gifts as you give them because they are so many. Help us all to be fully alive. Help us to avoid these dangers. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.